Lights, camera, action. Welcome to my now second episode done uh, on Zoom uh, during COVID-19 and social isolation. Uh, today's guest, Nigel Daly, president of North America for Screen International. And uh, we are so happy to have you on today and, uh, and welcome. Thank you, Charlie, happy to be here. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always uh, very impressed when I can get things to work. So if you could see the actual layout here, the camera is resting on a couple of cushions uh, in my little study downstairs, but you know, no one needs to know that, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, 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 you have uh, uh, lived a life as a, uh, an actor, a painter, a singer, and a salesman supreme. And uh, 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 let's wind back a little bit, back to early days. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, much other than uh, I guess you were you were born in Dartford. Uh, apparently, hmm. the same town as as Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, um, and and you and you lived there until you moved to to London as a young man. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Dartford uh, back in the day when I was a kid was a very interesting town. It, historically, um, one of the greatest stories actually was Henry V, after the Battle of Agincourt, took his army uh, from France across to Dover. And they rode their stallions up from Dover towards London. And they took respite in Dartford. And Dartford was a town that uh, you, you had a couple of inns there and you could stop. And in the middle of Dartford still stands today the Holy Trinity Church. It's a beautiful uh, flagstone church. And uh, it's a Church of England, obviously. Um, and the story is that Henry V rode his horse right up the middle of the church, right, right up the aisle to the altar, didn't get off, did this, said a few words of thanks to God, turned his horse and rode out. And Dartford was this kind of town when I, when I was growing up back then that, that felt like these old stories and legendary tales were in the brickwork and the fabric of this extraordinary place. But then as developers got in and the town went through what happens with every town, um, the ghastly, you know, raping of, of, of old buildings and, you know, it's now unrecognizable. In fact, I was there, when was I there? Probably about six months ago now. And it's, it's just not a very nice town to walk through. It's a real shame what, what happened to it. But it, back in the day when I grew up as a kid, it held a kind of magical quality, I've got to say. And it's, and it's east of London, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's southeast, so it sort definitely. of borders Kent, the Garden of England, and, uh, and sort of the beginning of what we would call London. So towns yeah. like Lewisham and Blackheath. Now, Blackheath is also very uh, historic, uh, where they buried most of the bodies from the Black Death. Uh, not a great subject to be talking about today, not but that's, uh, that's a historical area. And so <laughs> that whole area bordering Kent is uh, a mixture of suburbia and countryside. Wow. And I had a very interesting childhood. I mean, my mother, uh, she came from India, actually, and uh, 
they left in the 1940s when the partitioning of Pakistan and India happened. Uh, and because they were not Indian, they were of, of uh, Anglo-Indian extraction. So my great-grandmother was Spanish and they married into an English military family. So we were a mixed uh, European family. They had to kind of leave when, when India became India and Pakistan became Pakistan. And we had a choice back then of America, Australia, or England. And some of the ancestors went to Australia, some went to uh, England. None came to America, actually. I'm the first of that side of the family to come to, to, come to America. Whereas on my dad's side, uh, get this, and I only found this out about five years ago, we have a great, great, great uncle that did make it to America uh, on his second attempt, because the first attempt was on the Titanic. And he survived. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's a funny story. He, uh, his name was Eugene Daly, a young man from County Clare. And he set out from Southampton on the Titanic. And, of course, it went down. And legend has it that he was the guy on the deck playing the uh, violin. And uh, he uh, was portrayed in the film Titanic as somebody in the Titanic playing a violin. So I'm, I'm taking it that that was my uncle. <laughs> wow. But he, he, yeah, he, he made it to America. He ended up living in Brooklyn and he's buried in Brooklyn. And I do have apparently cousins and, uh, and you know, relatives living somewhere over there. I've never touched base with them. I, uh, not gone down that that route, but yeah, we were destined to come to America somewhere on the Daly side. Uh -huh. On the other, Fernandez and the Mitchell side, they um, they they made their peace with England, and they grew up. And I've got an entire family over there that descends from India and Spain. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and my own family, my my uh, my dad's family came from from Hamburg, Germany. And uh, oh, wow. and they had to. Uh, he was born in Hamburg and and uh, raised in Paris as a kid, and then they had to leave during the war. But there was a a portion of his family uh, on his uh, on his his mum's side that did not come to the U.S. as immigrants. They ended up in in, in London in Wimbledon. In Wimbledon, of all things. <laughs> so you've been over there many times. Many I, times. I had relatives. I had uh, cousins in, in Wimbledon. I still have cousins in Camden. Um, uh, one or two left there, and then there, and then of course the children of those. So, yeah, I still have, I have a, an odd odd connection to the to the UK through my my dad's immigrant family. But I uh, think that has a profound effect on you as a kid growing up when you've got sort of a a multicultural background. You know, my mother although not strictly Indian, grew up to the age of 21 in, in India. So when she moved to England, I mean, my grandparents, would you believe, had proper Indian accents. And I'll be honest, they looked Indian. And I used to have friends that would come home, you know, uh, when I was a kid for playdates. And uh, they'd <laughs> kind of see my grandparents and, and kind of go, hey, What's the story? <laughs> you could figure it out, right? Yeah, but they'd all be talking like this. You know, you, you want some food, my son? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, yeah, well, let, let's face it. The sun never would set over the British Empire. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there you have it, everybody. Uh, every, everybody from everywhere. 
that was occupied. So um, in in the uh, uh, in the eighties, you you moved into uh, into London. Um, uh, were you in university or were you just starting to work? What? How did it all? How did it all kick yeah, off? I I'd had this ambition uh, as I was growing up as a kid. I, I clearly was a painter, an artist. I guess those were the first things. The the kind of people that were the most influential on me growing up were people like David Hockney, Andy Warhol, um, Salvador Dali. Uh, those were my kind of rock and roll heroes. I was I was really kind of like obsessed with the arts and also acting. I loved actors. Um, so we'd go to the library, which was this. You know, funny enough, going back to Dartford recently, um, my father passed away. So I had a, a period where I was spending a lot of time back this time last year. In fact, to the day my father died and I was spending a lot of time at home with my mother. And of course, I'd walk around Dartford in grief and, uh, you know, just sort of kind of having that time to, you know, think about life. And I was going to places I hadn't been to since I was a kid. And one of them was the library. And in fact, I had to go to the library to, to register my father's death. Well, the last time I was there, I was six, I guess, you know, and I walked into this place and I always remember it when I, when I was a kid as a cathedral. It was this place that, that held all this information. And, you know, there was a section off that was a closed room that, that, that was the um, uh, reference library. That's what they called it and had records and and uh, and books that you couldn't take out because they were precious and this place held so much you know you know mystery for me and i used to always get the books that were the biographies of olivier uh the books of you know the writings of noel coward or or the songs of cole porter or i'd be in the reference library listening to laurence olivier's othello on a record and my dad would come in you know he was a very practical man and he'd go, what, what you got there? And I'd say, oh, it's nothing. It's like, oh, let me have a look. And it would be, you know, Olivier <laughs> reading Othello. Oh, my and God. The, the diary of Noel Cow. And he'd sort of look at me and go, all right. You know, <laughs> it couldn't work out where this strange creature had come from. But I was, I was, I was obsessed with that world of, of artistry and culture. And, um, and it was from the word go. So um, I guess... At, uh, you and, know, and, your, and your dad and your mom were, were what, what were their passions? So uh, mom, you know, she came from India. It was very hard for them to sort of settle into society uh, during, during that period, the, the, the 50s, the 40s and the 50s. Her first job was just, you know, secretarial work. I say that disparagingly, but that, you know, she's far greater than that. But she's a very organized practical woman so she organized the books of, of business people she works for a, a, a lord now in the uk uh and she handles his estate so she's a very organized woman and that that was her thing and my dad weirdly enough had a passion for the river thames and dartford had the dartford estuary and the thames came through it and i think as a kid he played a lot on the thames and the thames was always this wonderful story of what's out there in the world because great ships came in with produce uh, bananas from africa and stuff like this so it held this kind of you know it was, it was almost like a corridor to the rest of the world and so eventually he wanted to work on the river thames and he became a bargeman oh. and yeah and dad would be able to sit and tell you every nook 
uh, every turn, every tide, every every dock of the River Thames like it was the back of his hand. He knew that oh. river inside and out. He'd say, you know, you'd, you'd go out that far and, and you, you'd, you'd turn the, 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 the barge at this point and you'd dock it over there. And that was where they unloaded concrete and cement. That was where the bananas went. And he tells this extraordinary story of the Thames as you travel up. So wow. in a way, there was no artistry on that side um, until, and I, and I say this because it was a discovery that I'd know. So I was sitting down with dad once and I said, I wonder where I get my love of the theater and, and you know, uh, and, and, and that side of, of things. And he said, well, it's funny, I, I got the family tree, but I have a look at this. And my cousin had done our family tree of the dailies. And if you, you scratch the surface, it goes back to Ireland. And one of my ancestors was an actor. And he was involved in the Dublin, um, Dublin theatre. Uh, one was a poet. Uh, there was all these different, you know, basically literary types in the Daly family. Ah, from, and, the, and the, it was the Daly Irish lineage, of course, because that's, you know, you have family. Yeah, the storytellers exactly, and of course, you know, my dad was a storyteller. He'd sit and talk with anyone for hours, so it was in his DNA and it was in his blood. But he never—he wasn't a showman. He didn't like to be out front and performing, and that was the difference between me and my parents. I had this need to be kind of on stage and performing and up front, and it came out eventually, you know, sort of at some point. But I'd also. I, I love drawing and painting. So my desire was to go to art school. And in answer to your question, uh, around that age, which would have been 18, I would have gone to college or art school, but I ended up going straight into the business of advertising. Got it. So you moved, you moved into London and went straight to work in advertising. Yeah. Uh, at the time, my mother worked in a, a career development place in in Dartford and uh, she got first-hand um, look at what jobs were coming up you know back in the day you used to go to a career service when you were a kid and they'd look for jobs and and fit you into the most appropriate job or what they deemed was the most appropriate job and you ended and up at I ended up at Austin Knight advertising in Soho Square London at the age of 18 first job wow. 400 400 pounds a month, which is about like 700 bucks. Um, and I caught my first train from Dartford at uh, 7.30 in the morning. I'd arrive uh, around 8.30 at Charing Cross in a, in a suit and a tie. And I'd walk up through Soho, up through Leicester Square, um, through Chinatown, into the guts of Soho and, and up into Soho Square. and Boy, that's when that's when life opened up. Wonderful, wonderful. And the job was at the so yeah. So so the idea was I was in the I guess ground floor level. I was like an accounts guy, um, just doing cut and paste of regular ads that they'd have in the in the magazines and press. So you'd literally cut these ads out. It was an awful job. You'd cut these ads out. You'd stick them on this piece of paper. And I, you'd have to file it away. It was the, it was the worst job. It was like, it was like 1984. It was terrible. And, um, but the dream was I would, I would eventually up, end up upstairs 
where they had the copywriters and the designers and, and, and such like. And the highlight of that job was whenever there was a query. Because if there was a query, you'd take this query up to the seventh floor. And on the seventh floor, you had these exotic birds, literally. You know, like, uh, what was her name? There was Alex, Alex Denborn. I had such a crush on her. I don't know where she is. She's probably about 80 now. But she, uh, she used to have a long cigarette holder because everyone smoked in the office then. She had this uh, pullback blonde hair. And she handled all these big accounts. And I would be able to go up to her and tell her what the query was. And she'd say, oh, darling, they'll, don't worry. They'll pay it. They're fine. They're good for their money. All right, off you go. And off I'd go, you know, and, and that would be my thing for the day. Yeah. And <laughs> I think I was about... It almost sounds like, uh, like, uh, like the Mad Men era of advertising in England. Yeah. Totally was the Mad Men. Yeah. Right? I Smoking were... and uh, beautiful ladies in the office and... Totally, totally, totally. Eventually, I did end up upstairs in that uh, department, uh, but not on the design side, weirdly. Uh, I kind of fell in with that crowd of, of exotic creatures, the salespeople. They were the ones that were having more fun. You know, they were coming back from long lunches in Soho drunk, and if you, you took your query up there at 3 o'clock, well, Alex would maybe flirt with you. You know, it was a whole different story then. Well, I was a <laughs> Your old boy, you know, <laughs> it's like fun. Oh, darling, why didn't you come to the pub with us after? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you did that, and and so you got. So you were sort of uh, a person that would handle in, in, in a sales aspects in, a, in an agency. You'd be handling accounts. There would be physical, so, physical yeah. agency accounts. This is a a very important job because then that fed the the copywriter team there was the pitch and all of that but you were the you were the front side of 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 garnering what would become the clients that would pay everybody's bills really right yeah totally and and i think at that point uh, there was a moment in the crossroads of life where i had to make a decision it was really odd but you know the world of being an artist or the world of this crowd who were like exotic creatures with expense accounts that seemed to have, you know, very quick rapier like wit. They were always, you know, on a nice edge. They were, they were out, they were fun, fun to be around. And I, and they were salespeople, but it was the, what was it now? Uh, the late seventies, early eighties, I guess. And, you know, advertising was where it was at. The money was just huge, you know, Fantastic. So I, yeah, I wanted to be with that crowd. I was a young man and I was in Soho, London. And, uh, you know, so that was the beginnings of the end. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and, and you stayed in the agency world, but you also got involved with the, the court theater where you met Louise, right? Yeah. So, so a couple of things in between uh, yeah. Austin Knight. So, so what happened with, after Austin Knight is I bounced around a bit. Uh, I got out of advertising and I mean, there's been so many different weird and wacky jobs. I ended up working for a thing called the Electricity Council uh, in the intelligence service of that. Now, that was a really odd job. I think I did that for about six months. Very odd job. It was the sort of collating um, books and stuff uh, and reports for, for the electricity generating council. It was a, just an odd job. But during that time, they were supporting a program called Operation Raleigh. 
And Operation Riley was an organization that sent kids, I say up till about 2022, 23, to different places around the world. And they were like expeditions. And the guy that ran this thing was a guy called Sir John Blashford Snell and Prince Charles. And I had to get out of this damn job. It was, it was terrible. It was so boring. The only good thing about this company were the women that were there, I'll be honest. Um, I, as a young man, had a lot of fun in that company back in the day. Um, but then, you know, I had to get out. Uh, I, I just found it as a stifling uh, place. So I applied to go on Operation Raleigh. And I went on this two-day weekend. Uh, it was like an assault course, army-led thing where they just tried to break you over 48 hours and my wit and sense of humor and um, and fitness got me through and very quickly within two months I was on a plane heading for the Solomon Islands in the Pacific as an adventurer on this expedition and that was a gap and a moment a pause in my life where I was doing something really amazing we were uh, doing studies on flora and fauna. We were uh, going and meeting bushmen in the jungle and uh, um, working for Kew Gardens in collecting rare and ancient orchids. We did one section where we were uh, going out to islands and, and giving um, medicinal and um, health care to the kids on those islands. Um, we built a Red Cross centre so it was like a, a sort of thing that gave kids this ability to find themselves. So I came back after three months on that. I got out of this company, which was the electricity account, really dull company. And I ended up going back into publishing. Did that for a year in Soho. Great friend of mine, Tim Weller, who's a very successful publisher and one of the nicest men I've ever known, uh, was my boss. And, and one day I just realized I had to go and be an actor. So at that point, um, and I think I must have been about 26, I chucked it all in and headed to a repertory theater company called the Court Theater. And uh, you could basically join this company and learn during the day and rehearse at night and once a month put on a professional play somewhere. So yeah, that's where I met my wife Louise, and that was. It's during this period. That's all you're doing. You're not working in an ad agency and acting at night or any of that. You're you're doing just that after you left the job that you had in between the agency and joining the court. Yeah. Team. So so what happened was Tim Tim was a very dear and still is a very dear friend of mine, and he was the he he ran this company, and he basically said, "You're going to regret this." He said, "You're so good at what you do. You're a born salesman." Why are you throwing this away to become an actor? And I said, Tim, I've got to do it. You know, it's, it's uh, something I just got to do. And he said, listen, I'll, I'll cut you a deal. How many days have you got to do this shit? And I said, well, it's actually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So you train Thursday and Friday, you rehearse Saturday and Sunday. So it's a four day thing. So I'm basically Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm free. And he said, I'll retain you for three days in the company. So you carry on handling the business. I'll retain you for three days. So I actually, during that period, was working commission only and training as an actor. And so I wasn't really a starving actor. I was doing pretty okay. Um, so I balanced the two, actually. And I did that for three years. So I paid my way through um, drama school. Nice. With that 
three day a week retainer job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was interesting because it, it was like living a double life. You know, I'd have this wonderful four days where I was with my my people. You mm. know, the wackies, <laughs> the actors, right? The Mavericks, the Mavericks. You know, and we were all going to take over the world, and we were all discovering Stanislavski and Uta Hagen and the theatre of Bertolt Brecht, and we all had our visions of the future. And then, then on Monday, I was turning up in a suit and tie to become Mr. Madman again. Right, exactly. Amazing. That's and, why uh, I'm screwy. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. You, you've had the chance to, uh, uh, to, to live your life on your own terms, in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that probably comes from having been brought up in a, you know, mum and dad weren't, they were, they were middle class, work, I wouldn't say working class, I mean, they weren't working class, but they, they, they hustled, they worked hard, you know. Um, every house they bought, they did up, they, they sold. Uh, my father worked shifts, sometimes he was out all night doing what he did, and they were work, hard working people, and I think, you know, I didn't have the, opportunity or chance to pay my way by being born into a privileged family. I had to work hard for it. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't go to art school and didn't go to college. We couldn't afford it really. Uh, I had to get a job and that work ethic has never left me. I've, I've, I guess it's in my DNA. So I paid my way to college and, you know, even as an actor, really, I, I always made, opportunity i didn't wait for opportunity right right i mean i the way i see it is that that you you were you were constantly making sure that you were covering the part of your life that required compensation while pursuing your passions it's uh, uh, uh such a full life yeah and and it helps you know one of the things that happened when we left drama school louise and i well, at the end of our training, we realized that there was something. There was a chemistry, partly, partly helped by the fact that we were always managing to get the leads in every play um, that, the, that the court theater put on. I mean, we all, and much to the you know, annoyance of the rest of the company. In fact, there was, there was a revolution once where everyone kind of jacked up and went to the principal and said, you know, what's it with Richard Burton and Liz Taylor getting every fucking role here? Yes. <laughs> so you know we were like hey come on we 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 do we just cast you know we just go for the audition just like you guys um so we had to take lesser roles at the end of the uh of the uh training um so i ended up i think louise was a a character called pimple in the was it the importance of being earnest i can't remember the play now anyway it was a it was a farce and she was a, a, a basically just a little, you know, lackey in the household called Pimple, no lines. And I was an old um, uh, butler and just a couple of silly walk-on parts. And this other couple got the lead. And we were fine with that. You know, I'd been Bossler, she'd been the Duchess of Malfi, I'd been this, like, we were fine with that. But we decided that we'd steal, <laughs> we'd steal the part. And we used to upstage every night. I'd come on with my tray shaking and she'd come on and do some other business and we'd get, you know, we'd, we'd always get the laughs. But anyway, that was, that was when we kind of realized that there was a chemistry and we, 
came out of drama school and decided that we'd work together and form a theatre company. Which was the laboratory. Which was the, back in the day, it was the laboratory theatre company. Um, and the idea was, it was a kind of revolutionary type of theatre. So we wanted to put theatre on in places that weren't theatres. We weren't about the proscenium arch, we were about the, the nightclub or the underground tube station or the warehouse. And our casts were always misfits. You know, we'd be down in the tube of London, in the tube station of London, and we'll see a busker who looks like he's come straight out of New Orleans. And we'd go, hey, what are you doing next Thursday? You want to be in a play? Like, yeah, okay. Okay, turn up on Wednesday night and we'll, you know, we'll do a rehearsal. Um, and, you know, these plays were self-devised pretty much based on the stuff that we were both in love with would be things like the world of Salvador Dali. One play was exactly based on a Dali painting called the metamorphosis of Narcissus, which is the, the hand and the egg and the body leaning over. And we wrote an entire play based on that painting. That's fantastic. And play, yeah. And the play was called the delicate art of dreamwalking. I love it. I love it. It's like, you know, for me, it's like, uh, you know, you're, you guys uh, uh, have a union that's based on creative collaboration. Uh, uh, what a fantastic marriage as well, eh? I mean, to be honest, it, it, was, it was an extraordinary um, connection that we both had. And it was based on uh, our, our, our joint love of, of culture and the type of culture we loved. And it's been that our entire life. And um, we have a shorthand in terms of what we do creatively that doesn't even require us to talk sometimes. Um, we're both and thinking. You guys are constantly collaborating. Am I right? Even with, I'm, I'm with things current and, and all, yeah. all of the, the activities that you're doing because you do so many things outside of screen. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, so screen. Gosh, it's such a it, it's such a strange map. My my life. I mean, well, you know, if you look, right? You you joined Screen, right? Yeah. So so the theatre company was going really well. We were doing a lot of these fantastic plays in London that were were in that day immersive. I mean, before the term immersive theatre came out, we were doing immersive theatre. We were taking audiences in places where they would not be sitting in a chair; they'd be walking through. Um, they'd get dirty, they'd get covered in paint, they would, you know, they'd be confronted somewhat in some of the plays. And, and we built a big, you know, um, fan base. People loved our plays. But then we started to move into the idea of film and we were really obsessed with a man called Derek Jarman. And he was a very avant-garde filmmaker. Uh, unfortunately, died of AIDS in London but he was a great campaigner for gay rights and his plays were very political. And even in his death, he made an artistic statement of being a man who was living with AIDS. Uh, and Derek is um, responsible for Tilda Swinton. He discovered her. Oh my God, and, what a spectacular actress she is. Oh, I mean, he discovered her, I believe, as legend has it, he saw her in a market and asked her if she would be in this film called Caravaggio, based on Caravaggio's life. 
And she was, I don't know what she was then. I don't know if she was an actress. I don't think she was. And she, she was cast in this film. And the film is funded by the British Film Institute. And it was a film that really inspired Louise and I incredibly. And so did Jarman. And uh, we tried to sort of model ourselves on the school of Jarman, the school of Warhol, uh, you know, these maverick filmmakers that were just getting out there and, and doing stuff. And so we started to make, you know, very collaborative films, very experimental. But at that time, you know, we weren't bringing in the big bucks and, and uh, our first child was on the horizon and I decided I needed a job. And the screen thing came about because I was in Milan at a film market flogging a horror movie called Dark Waters. And this movie was made by a mutual friend of Louise and, uh, and I called uh, Mariano Beno. And I was over there flogging this film. I saw a friend of mine from back in the day when she I was, was in. An, she was, sorry to interrupt, she was an actress in Dark Waters, am I right? Lou was the lead in Dark Waters, yes. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah, I just wanted to bring that in, yeah. Yeah, she must have been, I'm just trying to think. It was in 93, I think, Dark Waters was made. And it was made in Kiev, in Russia. And it was made for 400,000, if I'm right, $400,000. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the funny thing is Mariano uh, lives in New York now. And uh, Dark Waters played recently in Brooklyn, in a, in a theater in Brooklyn. It, it's got a huge fan base. It's a very Dario Argento-esque, cultish kind of movie. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very 19, uh, like 1990s, early 90s. But people love it. And what? Lou was the. <clears throat> what happened was Mariano couldn't sell it. Uh, he was he was uh, more, much more like creative. He couldn't work out how to flog this movie, and he was having dinner with us in in where we used to live in Chelsea, London, <clears throat> and he said, "Nigel, uh, why don't you sell uh, this movie? You you're such a salesman. I, I don't know why you just don't do it." And I said, "I haven't got a clue. I I wouldn't know. I'm an actor. I don't know how to sell movies." Please, just read this book. So he gave me the A to Z of film sales written by a guy called Dove S.S. Simmons. If you remember him, funny character. Um, That's not a name that I know, but I, 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 trust me, in, this, in that part of our world, I know quite a few. Well, Dove, I bumped into at the last AFM. It was, it was hilarious. So uh, I've since moved to the States and Dove, Dove, you know, was back in London doing these two day workshops for producers. And we were all, you know, we we're all kids, but he'd come into, if I believe it was then, uh, Soho Houses Club now in, in, in um, Notting Hill. He came in and he said, how many of you guys are producers? Put your hands up. And we were all so British. We were just sitting there, you know, <laughs> not really. And he's like, right, lesson number one. Everyone put the damn hand up. <laughs> You're all producers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. But I, I, unfortunately, as we know, after years of doing this, that's sort of true. Totally. You know, he was like, listen, go get yourself a business card. And go get yourself a canister of film. And then you're a filmmaker. And, you know, it was pretty much that. So, so, so anyway, Mariano gave me his book. And it had, it had about three or four examples of, you know, the classic film sale. 
and we set up a screening in London at 20th Century Fox. We took in the negative, as you did back in the day, and uh, we invited all the local distribution companies in London from Blue Dolphin, uh, 20th Century Fox, uh, Metro Tartan, gosh, all these names that some are still around and some have gone. And there was one guy called Hamish McAlpine, who's a very dear friend of mine still to this day, who just had a twinkle in his eye when he came out of the, uh, of the cinema and um, came walking up to me and said, I really enjoyed that, really enjoyed it. And I, I knew he was the one. I knew he was the one. And I took his hand and I said, listen, here's my card. <laughs> I said, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Uh, when are you available? And he said, come to the office tomorrow. And, and I'm on uh, Wardour Street. And I said, okay, absolutely. That morning, Mariano and I step into the office of Metro Tartan, which was then one of the most exciting distribution companies in London. It was a really cool company. They did all of the uh, Criterion-type movies and the sort of foreign language movies. And they just had a really great aesthetic. And, and Hamish was the son of... Lord McAlpine, who was a multi-millionaire um, property developer, so he he came from sort of sort of aristocracy. I mean, he gave this like impression that he was was a viscount himself. He's very cab, wonderful character, and um, I sat down and he said, "Well, what are you looking for?" And I regurgitated from rote from my memory example number three from Dove's book. You know, it was like, "Well, we want." I can't even remember what it was, 40% this and blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay, so how much do you want up front? And I said, well, if we could have, you know, this. And I slipped a piece of paper over and it had the figure on it. And he said, I'll give you half in a check now and I'll give you the other half in three months when you deliver all of the uh, assets. And we walked out of that office with 25,000 pounds in our pocket. <laughs> and that was the first deal I'd ever done in 93. With a with a little low budget horror movie, and it, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. That's what we call that's what we call the closest to doing a deal on a paper napkin you can get. <laughs> it really was. It yeah, really was because it was on the spot and decisions were made without break. You, you yeah, got it back and forth, and a deal was made. You know, no, yeah. Totally. We we know that that that's not always. <laughs> uh, and you know, we got the second half of the check. Uh, maybe eight months later, and not a penny after that. You know, in true in true fashion. But oh, you know, yeah. hard school and knocks, right? You learn. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the movie business. Totally. <laughs> and, and at that point, I think I realised that um, film sales really wasn't for me. It wasn't. It didn't hold uh, the same. It didn't, it didn't hold it for me. I wanted to be either behind the camera or in front of the camera. Uh, I wasn't someone that, you know, I ticked that box. So at that point, um, it was a, a time of reflection. And I was in Milan with that picture in October of that year. And I bumped into a friend from, from the old days of advertising. And she said, I work for this magazine called Screen. And I said, well, look, I'm looking for a regular gig. I've got a kid on the way. Uh, you know, I'll come and, you know, I'll come and I'd love to come and do a summer job or something, you know, if you've got anything. That summer job turned out to be, you know, 20, 21 years screen. 
20, 21 years later, that summer job's still going. Yeah, exactly. Just keep renewing that summer job every year. I mean, you know, it's funny that the early days of screen, um, and this was London, I was, what is it, 1998. So I was still in love with Soho and still very much enjoying that kind of frivolous, long lunches and meeting great people. And, and, you know, the industry then was completely different to what it was then now, you know? Um, so, I, you know, there was a lot of money going around and a lot of post-production companies were spending heaps of money on campaigns. And so it, it was a good time for me being, being in London with screen. And I was able to utilize some of the contacts through screen to continue making little projects. Lou and I actually made a film in 98 at Three Mill Island Studios um, on 35 mil that had the post-production finished by one of my clients on screen. Uh, the deal at Three Mill Islands was written off as free because they were also a client. And um, I got it shown at Goldcrest in London, again, because I knew John Quested and he gave wow. me the feel. You know, so it was, it, you know, screen helped uh, in, a, in a way. It really did. Oh yeah, well that 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 automatically opens doors to all of the people who are responsible for each line of business, whether it was the post production companies, the distributors, uh, the financiers, yeah. salespeople. That's yeah. It. So you uh, you created a, a, a or were I should say better you were able to do things on the side when you were at screen. And <laughs> You created a character in this show called The Kitch Lounge Riot. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a, a gentleman by the name of Tony Bacardo, which I believe is your nom de plume as the host. <laughs> That's right. Um, I uh, 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 performed at, at Cafe de Paris in Soho. I, I, I cannot say that I could be any more in love with such an idea as this, because <laughs> this is... Uh, this is just uh, 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 everything that everyone would hope for in, in pursuing their creative life while they show up to work every day in a suit and tie. And, uh, you know, it's funny you talk about suit and tie. I, I, not, to di not to digress, but I started at Technicolor uh, in 1990. I had a 25-year career there. Wow. And from 1990 <laughs> to 99, a lot of people don't remember that we uh, that we 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 uh, salespeople there had to wear uh, suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and right. In nineteen ninety nine, uh, the business casual, at least in New York, came in, and uh, uh, I could not have been more thrilled to take the tie off and show up to work. Shirt. <laughs> you see, uh, I wouldn't be wearing a tie right now, but I've just interviewed a Dane uh, for Brit Week, so I had to I had to look. You know. Oh um, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's great to me. I mean, now that it's no longer de rigueur, I actually find it quite a gas to wear a tie periodically. That's it. Uh, it's so nice to know? put one on again. Yeah. I mean, exactly. the, second, the second half is a pair of Adidas tracksuit bottoms. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I want to hear all about uh, uh, Tony. Tony. No, please, please do tell. Do tell the story. All right. All right, so 
so part of the part of the vernacular of Nigel has been a love of you know growing up watching Abbott Costello, Cary Grant, and then it was Dean and and uh, Sammy and Frank and all those movies. The I rap. the rap I love them. I mean, I kind of wanted to be Dean Martin. He was the coolest cat, you know, and Sammy was the most talented man on the planet. I mean, they were just amazing. And I had a voice. I could sing. Uh, it was just a skill that came to me. I don't know. I can't remember what exactly happened, but I'd get very drunk in a pub and I would sing Maria from West Side Story. Oh. And this, this, this thing would come out. And I was like, what the? What it where does that come from? It was literally like Maria, and that's just like, but it would, and I'd do it on the streets of London, and people would come out of their offices. And they were, I'd, I'd had you know three or four pints, and my colleagues would say, Come on, come on, do, do Maria. And I'd stand there and I'd sing this thing, and it would shut down streets. So, this voice I didn't even know I had, um, you know, it was this, this unknown skill during the time at screen would come out again when I was in the pub messing around trying to entertain the troops. And then one day I, I was with a friend of mine, Jamie, and we said, why don't we rent the Cafe de Paris for a night and dedicate it to the idea of those like lounges that, that Sammy and Dean and all those kind of cats used to hang out. So we came up with the idea of, actually, I've got to back up. It wasn't the Cafe de Paris. It was the very first spot was a was a gay sauna, <laughs> actually, in true Bette Midler fashion. No, oh, my, my, you're, my, you're kidding. My, this is in Soho as well, though, right? It is in in Covent Garden, which oh, Covent Garden. is like right next to Soho. Right next door, yeah. Right. So my brother, uh, who is gay, happily married, gay guy, lives in Sydney, Australia now. Um, at the time, was the manager of this gay sauna in Engel Street, Covent Garden. And, you know, I'd go down there and meet him for a drink or go and meet him for lunch or whatever. We'd go down there, there's all these guys sitting around with their towels, you know, checking each other out, whatever, you know. Um, but it was a great place. It was <clears throat> amazing arches and little corridors and rooms. And I said to him one day, listen, we can't afford to rent uh, a place. Could, could, we, could you speak to Noel and see if we could take the sauna for one night? So he said, I'll speak to Noel. I mean, he likes you, you know. So Noel was the, the owner. And we sat down with Noel and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, we want to do a show like a Sammy Davis and Dean Martin kind of spectacular. He said, as long as I can wear drag, you can have it for nothing. So he was our door bitch. Noel was our door bitch, dressed like, you know, some old dame. And um, we had about, it could only fit 60 people. We had about 200 people in this place and it was the first kitsch lounge riot. And it was, I created this character called Tony Bricardo and Tony was from Chicago and he had a kind of like gangstery kind of voice and he, <clears throat> you know, he's all rough and, and, and he'd sing, fly me to the moon and let me sing amongst it, all this kind of stuff. And it was all backing tracks. And then there were the, these other kind of cabaret characters like Lenny Beige who is still going and right now he's performing from his living room on Facebook. And uh, he's a, an actor called Steve First, but he created Lenny Beige. And Lenny Beige is even wackier than I was. I mean, Lenny had the full wig 
and he's a he's basically a Jewish kind of uh, uh, lounge lizard. Uh, then there were some other characters. Mike Flowers. <coughs> Mike Flowers sang um, "Come On, Baby, Light My Fire" with a yellow wig, and uh, all these kind of fantastic characters. Uh, Count Indigo. He's still going strong. Count Indigo was more like Sammy. So we had these amazing guys all in character and then all these beautiful women that would do the old, you know, sort of feather dances and all this. Stuff. And we created the KLR. Well, the KLR then went from the Gay Sauna to the Café de Paris, which was the oldest nightclub in London. It's where the Queen celebrated her 21st birthday back in the day. Very famously, Noel Coward and Marlena Daytrick came down this staircase to the stage and performed live. And I think it's on camera, that performance. It is a very, very famous club. And we had it for the night, cost us 700 pounds. We split the bar and we filled this room with about seven or 800 people. And that day on, every Thursday night, it was the toast of London. It was. Ex it just got stronger. Every Thursday night, you you go from work and you're Tony Bacardi. Yeah, I'd finish work. Uh, I lived not far. I lived in Chelsea, so I'd run home. Uh, I'd stick a tape in the television. It'd be usually be Frank, you know, and I'd start getting dressed and I'd be watching Frank, you know, getting into character and uh, getting dinner suit, you know, and a couple of whiskeys or whatever, and uh, and then you know catch the cab up to Soho. Jamie would be waiting at the front of the door and, you know, we'd go into the club. Backstage in the dressing room, all of the other performers are in there. A couple of other, you know, drinks and such like. And then an hour later, the crowd's in the house, the music's playing. Jamie, my partner in the business at the time, was called Jamie Starr, and he was the DJ. So he would play kitsch. So the idea of the club was the first part was kitsch music, the second part was lounge, which is the performances. And then riot was when everyone hit the floor and danced till 3 a.m. That's fantastic. Oh, my God. The happiest days of my life. The happiest and, days of my life. And this lasted from what were the years of this uh, uh, famous show? You were at Scream. I, you were working at yeah. Scream. So it was after 93, clearly. Yeah, I was at Screen, And I was at Screen in 98. And the club ran from 98. Well. It, it was still running when I left England in 2003, but I stepped back and Johnny Barron came in as a partner with Jamie. There was another character called Oliver Darley who has the voice of an angel. Uh, Oliver was our, he was the kind of straight guy in, in the group. He, he just relied on, on a great voice. I mean, he could belt it out. He occasionally performed as Jesus. Um, so <laughs> He'd come on stage dressed like Jesus and he'd, he'd belt out a couple of numbers as Jesus. I mean, it was a very eccentric night and some really odd acts. Complete but madness. The, I love it. And, and, complete and, madness. And the, and and the club be, became kind of like um, a sort of working, a working ground for shows that some actors or performers were going on to, like Tony Bennett performed on stage before he went to the Albert Hall. And Andy Williams came down one night and performed um, on stage. Uh, we had Boy George. Uh, we, we had a few stars, a great English, uh, sorry, a great French performer called Sasha Distel. 
So it became then quite an established thing. You could still I'd probably go online and see the KLR club now. I'm, I'm sure there's some pictures and footage of it from the old days. With you in it? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean... Oh, my God, I would love to do that. I would love to see you as Tony Ricardo. That would be... What a treat that would be. I, 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 I'd try and send you some pictures, actually, of the old days. I mean, I used to have hair, so I had the slick back hair. Obviously, I was a lot thinner. Um, but, yeah, Tony was very cool. And we were all smoking. In fact, we smoked so much during those days, we decided to go to Camel Cigarettes and oh, ask yeah. them if, if they would sponsor us. Oh. So they... they they would write a check for £2,000 a week to sponsor the show and be able to um, have these girls with the trays taking cigarettes around, just giving them to the audience. Unbelievable. I love it. And then this, this was, you know, part of your, your nightlife in, 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 in Soho at the time or wherever. And, and, and then, and then the, the, we, we talked a little bit about an after hours club that I know from my, my many years of going in and out of London called Jerry's. Ah. That was where, where uh, all of the West End would go after they got out of work and, and uh, was a, a basically an anomalous door at the bottom of Dean street. And you walked in and you would basically be in there all night singing to the <laughs> piano and and drinking with uh, with actors from the West End, and apparently yeah. that was also part of your life at the time. Um, I I'm, I swear we would have been in that room together at some point because <laughs> I was practically in there every night. So so Soho had this what I call the the Golden Mile, uh, and this is how my evening would start. I would go to the French House, which is a pub. Um, where the intellectuals would go, the very discerning thinkers. Um, and you would see, if you were lucky, someone like Francis Bacon might be in there, or Lucian Freud, um, sort of some old lovies from the theatre of yesteryear. You know, uh, there was a very famous Doctor Who, um, I try to remember his name, Tom Baker. Tom Baker was one of the big Doctor Whos back in the day, before it became huge over here. And he was a great big booming voice actor and stand at the bar, you know, hold court. And then there was another guy who was six foot two, who'd wear dark glasses and a big fedora and just drink all afternoon. He'd drink from one to about seven, one after the other. And then he'd just leave. And one day I had a few myself and I went up to him. I said, <clears throat> wow, you've got such a great booming voice. You know, what do you do? He said, I do all the commercials. I said, what, what, what do you mean? He says, I'm the voice of a boy, a dog, a girl on an island. You know, and it's all of the commercial uh, movies. He does all the voiceovers. <laughs> all the voiceovers. I said, but how do you, so you drink, that's how you get it. And he said, this is how I get it. He took the glasses and he lowered them. And I would swear I was looking into the gates of hell. You know, these eyes were just bloody red. <laughs> but he was one of the characters that would do the French. And after the French, you'd go to the coach and horses and you'd have a few drinks at the coach. And that would be Geoffrey Bernard, who was a very famous writer and I'd say just a, a, a vagabond, a rogue and a vagabond. They wrote a play about him called Geoffrey Bernard is Unwell based on um, one night he went into the bathroom and fell asleep in the, in the cubicle and the pub closed and he woke up and came out and everyone was gone. And uh, Keith Waterhouse wrote this play on the idea of what happened 
between two o'clock and eight o'clock the next morning because most of the bar had been drunk dry and Jeffrey Bernard was practically dead. And it's a play that Peter O'Toole acted in first and foremost. And it's just uh, uh, Jeffrey Bernard is in there pontificating on life. And it's, it's a really lovely meditation on uh, a, a man who's got to a certain point where he feels the need to drink an entire bar. So you do the French, you do the colony, and then you'd end up in a club called, sorry, the uh, Coaching Horses, then you'd end up in a club called the Colony Rooms. Now, the Colony Rooms was no bigger than a bathroom, but every single actor and artist and character was in there. It was the most colourful gem in Soho. In fact, for Brit Week this week, I'm interviewing Molly Parkin, who was a firm fixture in the Colony Rooms. She's now 88. But she hung out with the likes of uh, Jeffrey and Peter O'Toole and uh, Francis Bacon and a man called George Melly, who was a big jazz singer back in the day. And then after that, I'd see you down in Jerry's. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. After Groucho. After so, and uh, Groucho on the way. Yeah. Let's not, let's not exclude Groucho. So, um, so okay. So just as a curiosity, your life in 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 uh in london uh uh you transitioned i, I believe it was in you, you left london 2003 you said yeah so 2003 uh i now have two kids i'm living in primrose hill which is next door to camden um you know it's a beautiful flat that was a garden flat on the on the park uh life's wonderful i'm the business development manager at Screen International. Uh, I drive to work. I've got a parking space in Clerkenwell. Um, I've got the club running in London on Thursday nights. I'm doing projects with Louise still. Uh, and we have a very blessed life. But it was so expensive living in Primrose Hill. I mean, the rent then was, this is back in 2003, was two and a half thousand pounds a month. And that was a lot of money for rent, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and I was struggling and I just thought, geez, there's got to be more to life than this. You know, and I just, and one of the heads of screen over here uh, was going on maternity leave and they needed someone to head up the business in North America while she was on maternity leave for a year. And I jokingly said to the publisher at the time, well, you do know I speak fluent American. And she said, ha, 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 are you serious, though? Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I would, actually. I said, what, what, for a year? She said, yeah, you'd go and fill in for Deborah while she's away for a year. And, you know, we'll pay your rent. And you can put everything in storage. And if you want to come back after 12 months, you've got your job. If you want to stay, we could always create another role over there because America is a very big part of the business. And I went home that night and I told Louise, do you fancy going to Hollywood for a year? I said, they'll pay the rent. You don't have to, so my salary is going to be my salary. They'll pay the rent. They'll pay this. They'll get a card. And I said, and we we'll get to check out Hollywood. I mean, as a, as a fledgling filmmaker, because I was still trying to get films off the ground. Um, and we were still hustling our way, you know, with the laboratory. I was like, let's go to head office. You know, the best best case scenario is we get a deal and we can jump ship and life will be rosy. 
Worst case scenario, we've just had a wonderful year and we come back after that. And that's what it was. You know, that, that was the thinking around it. It was just an adventure, to be honest. I mean, at that time, actually, I was so sure I'd be back in London that I took the entire contents of our life and packed it off in a truck to be stored for a year in, in Bedford. And um, it sat in that storage facility for 10 years. <laughs> Little did you know. Little did I know that, that Hollywood would be, you know, the seductress she has been. Um, and it's not always, you know, it's not been, it's not like I came to America and that was it. You know, I never looked back and I'd never go back to London. London, to me, is still one of the greatest cities on the world. I'm, I, I pine for it sometimes. I still, after 17 years, I, you know, I could easily go back. I love it. I think it's a wonderful place. But extraordinary things happen in this country. And in particular, extraordinary things happen in L.A., and I don't think these things would have happened to me had I been in London, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly one of them that we, we as an example, would be uh, uh, your recognition in SOBE uh, uh, came from being a, a contributor uh, to the expansion of your world in, in North America. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I mean, in a sense, right, I mean, the the recognition of your character, of your of 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 what your uh, uh, your contribution has been over the years working at screen being in hollywood and los angeles working in the position you have that that kind of led the way to a recognition that might not have really been the same right and it had you stayed in london yeah, yeah totally and i think you what you said earlier about um it it was it's hard to weigh up what the recognition really connects to because I don't want to sound like a, an egomaniac, but there are so many different sides to my character that I think have helped the story of Nigel. And that is like, you know, I'm, I'm a creative thinker. I am always happy to oblige and help anyone. I'm a champion of the independent filmmaker. I'm, a, I'm, I'm fiercely British. Uh, I'm always, you know, happy to listen to anyone that needs advice or help or, or anything in that respect. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'd love to be busy. So Screen was one big part of my life. BAFTA was one big part of my life. I joined the board of the British Academy of Film in LA. And I worked my way up to be chairman of that. Um, and just, you know, being British out here affords you, a, 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 I don't know, people love the Brits. They just love us. They think, we, they think we're smarter than we are for a start definitely no there's no question about that there's no question that the 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 british accent affords <laughs> you uh, uh uh many iq points <laughs> exactly and i haven't particularly got a posh accent mine's a mixture of you know that southeast london and and whatever i became when i moved to london and who i am today but you know I, people just think i've got you know some posh accent i've not really got a posh accent at all and a level um, of sophistication worldliness uh, uh that i think uh uh, uh at least in, in the backdrop of america is somewhat warranted uh that that the people that come from the uk uh, as uh, as as uh, making america their home uh, uh, uh do have the opportunity to 
to share something that's not available for someone that didn't come from your background. Yeah, yeah, and the love of everything that being a European, and I say that still today. Yes. Uh, I, I still believe I'm a European. I love Europe. I love our cousins across the waters. And I believe that, you know, being as a young man, at the age of 21, I took a, a little VW with a friend of mine and we just drove from France through every country of Europe. That was like a, the, the road trip of, of, you know, and I loved it. And, and I learned so much. And I think that's in your DNA. But anyway, all this kind of stuff that I did, this life that I led, went into this mixing pot and came out as this hybrid person in LA. Call it, you know, call it what you want, whether I'm president of Screen or whether I was ex-chairman of BAFTA or chairman of Brit Week, which is this thing that's happening tomorrow. And, uh, the, or and, the, the, and then the story, which I loved, which you told me, about how you were informed about being uh, elected OBE, uh, <laughs> and where you were and how it took place coming off the plane in Cannes. Uh, do tell. So, you know, you're getting the picture that Nigel Daly lives a double life, maybe a triple, quadruple life. You know, there's lots of different types and the person that, you know, is in here. Um, and so I land in Cannes for the Cannes Film Festival. So I'm like, you know, this is who I am. I'm now screen and this is what we're going to do. And the first meeting is with my team and we're sitting at this cafe and I've just got off the plane. So I've done that nine hour flight, a little jet lagged. Got my first glass of rosé and we're talking about what we're doing for the week. You know, we're going to hit these targets. We've got to do this. We've got this event. And the phone goes and I take out my cell and it's the British Consul General's Chief of Staff, uh, Daryl Cameron. And um, I think, why is Daryl calling me? That's very odd. So I said, I better get this, guys. So I pick up the phone and I'm like, Daryl? And he says, Nigel. I said, is everything all right? Because my wife and kids are still in L.A. And uh, has there been an earthquake or an accident or is there something terrible I should know? He said, oh, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. I said, well, I'm, I'm in Cannes. Can this wait till I get back? He said, no, 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 it can't. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, no, there's no problem. But where are you standing? And I said, what do you mean where am I standing? And I'm thinking, Jesus, has someone got like a, a target on my back? Is this a James Bond assassination? I said, what do you mean where am I standing? I, he said, well, find somewhere really remarkable to stand because I'm about, I'm about to tell you something you're never going to forget for the rest of your life. At this point, I had no idea, literally no idea what was about to come. I said, Daryl, I'm standing in Cannes. The, the band stands in front of me. Uh, I've got, you know, the boats bobbing on the Mediterranean over to the left. I said, it doesn't get better. What is it? He said, Nigel Daly. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II would like to honour you with the Order of the British Empire. Well, get 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 the you know where I am. I'm I'm in Cannes. I've just flown nine hours and I've just drunk a glass of rosé. So <laughs> I'm thinking I'm having some kind of weird you know acid acid throwback or something. So <laughs> you need to say that again. He said Nigel Daly, and I'm thinking, okay, this is really happening, Nigel. I said, Daryl, uh, and I just, I started, a little tear comes here. I said, Daryl, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I said, I, I, I'll have to phone you back. I'm speechless. And I put down the phone and I thought to myself, that can't, that can't be true. So I phoned him back and he said, yes, it is. I said, 
okay, th thank you. What do I do? He said, don't say anything to anyone. You have to be quiet for six months. There's a due diligence period. But uh, if all goes well, you'll be receiving your honor uh, in January. Um, and we'll pick up the rest. He said, but I just had to call you and let you know. And put down the phone and I go and join the Screen International team with this little secret. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, sorry, guys. Um, I said, everything all right? I said, yeah, everything's fine. No. Yeah. Because <laughs> you couldn't talk about it. And, it, and, and yet it was one of the most exciting things to happen uh, uh, in the moment. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, a funny, a funny side note to this was every, every Christmas, the Queen gives her speech uh, just after Christmas lunch. It's usually at three o'clock on Christmas Day, and it's from Buckingham Palace. And it's, it's a speech that goes out to the Commonwealth. And she's been doing it since the 50s. And you can find them all on YouTube. And one year I thought, I'm going to do my own speech, but I'm going to do it in the style of the Queen. So I started to look at all these speeches and I found one, the very first one she did. And there was some, God bless the Queen, but back in the day, there were some sort of lines in it that she wouldn't say today, you know, um, and they're, they're quite comedic. Uh, it is through the medium of television that I'm able to reach you today. You know, that kind of thing. I so I did my, my, my own version of the Queen's speech and I sent it out to all my friends. I put it on Facebook and, and every year then I just upped it and made it more and more camp. And the character was, um, we called him the forlorn Viscount. And I, I, I would just, you know, sort of every year make it crazier and crazier and crazier. One year I gave a speech um, and behind me, I had a woman, a friend, dear friend of mine, Sarah, standing there doing, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the spontaneous translation for the deaf. Right. So she's doing the sign language, but just to throw people off, she, she's got a massive black eye. <laughs> just, just, just did it. Just to, as a comedic thing. I love so she's it. doing it with this black. Anyway, these things, and, and I suddenly thought to myself, oh my God, they're going to find them. They're going to find the speeches on YouTube and I'm, not, I'm going to lose the OBE. So I quickly phoned my wife and I said, can you get on YouTube and, and password every one of those bloody speeches? Because if they find them, they'll retract the offer. You know? Oh my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that Hilarious. was a big, big one. Hilarious. So at screen all these years uh, doing uh, uh, all the things that you've done. You do the, obviously the Oscars campaign every year. These are big revenue makers for the magazine. And yeah. now of course the industry is going through a, 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 a shock to the system uh, uh, with, with the, the cancellation or at least postponement of con um, mm. and, and, and events around uh, 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 due to the, the current uh, COVID-19 shutdown. And uh, uh, so we, we, we enter a world where, uh, where uh, and, and, and apropos of that, we enter a world where an event like your own, Brit Week, is being done online. But the reality is uh, our world in the movie business is getting turned outside. And, um, and yet, uh, uh, as, as many of the producers that I speak with who kind of go by the idea that content is content, and let's face it, the the streamers aren't going to stop. In fact, they're going to grow. Um, uh, so, you know, we go through these changes and these shifts in the industry. Um, you're at the beginning of that of that journey, 
And, and right now you're working on an, a, an event that was meant to be a public event that is Brit Week. And I yeah. know you would like to talk about Brit Week. Yeah. Tell me about <laughs> Brit Week. Well, um, just, just to address what you're saying about, um, you know, screen and the industry and that, you know, we, we, we're, um, you know, we're, we're working our way through it. And one of the things that I think we're trying to do is offer as much as we can online that assists the industry, that's of service to the industry. So can, obviously we were waiting through here, what they were doing, uh, are announcing now to everyone this online platform uh, that will be able to you know assist sales companies in moving content films uh, where you can screen and even to some extent have meetings online so there um, may, uh, freeze frame on that sorry to interrupt you but very important and mm. uh, uh, this is something that uh, uh, captures the uh, the interest of anyone listening to the podcast the the event will will still enable its mission, which is film sales, right? But yeah. it will shift to an online model of that, and not a non-event model. But nonetheless, yeah. the ability for people that have projects to sell to sell. Now go yeah. back. To your, your, your yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, Can has over four thousand buyers, I guess, registered in the uh, portal that they use, um, Sinando. Uh, so they're building that out. I, I do believe, actually, they've sent out a, a template of what that's going to look like. Screen International is working with the festival uh, in that we will utilize that um, uh, list of buyers, dedupe it against our list of buyers, and we are creating a platform ourselves, which is called Screen, um, Screen Market Plus, which, again, will allow everything to go online. And even, even CAA are working uh, with uh, what they do in Cannes, which is essentially, you know, introducing high-level kind of Tiffany projects, I guess, uh, to their um, to their buyers. So it's all happening. It's just having to be reshaped and reconfigured to an online world. Um, the festivals, the festivals like Cannes love uh, the idea of theatrical, and I think that's the hardest thing in that a lot of these films warrant a theatrical experience. So that's a tough one. And um, we're going to see how the festivals really survive this because it's, it's, it's what they're about, the theatrical experience. And they're about bringing people together. And, and, you know, it's really awful what's happening. But I think the shift will be online. And Screen International most certainly is going to be affected by this massively. Um, but if we do the right thing and we create the right platform, there's no reason why films can't be sold that way, you know? Well, it'll rattle through. You have, you have after uh, Khan is done, you have a break in the action. Yeah. And then, and, then, and then in August, you have the Venice Biennale. I don't know what they've said. I don't even know if they're exi – do they exist this year? I don't know. Yeah, so Venice are talking with Khan, and they may actually come together and work together. So they're, they're, they're working something out between them together. Um, of course, TIFF, TIFF Toronto, is... Toronto's in September. It's the first yeah. Thursday in September. Is, what, yeah. what, are, what are they saying right now? So they're, they're uh, you know, Cameron, I think at the moment, he's, you know, he's a smart thinking guy. I think he's looking at every opportunity 
to you know regage online uh but we don't know maybe by then there may be a possibility who knows we just don't know do we i mean it, you know one day at a time but um i think the reality is we're not going to see any true return to normality until next year i don't think so so maybe Personally. maybe maybe by the time sundance rolls around in january yeah. in utah yeah. we might re-begin a cycle and then after that in february you have uh, the berlin yeah. festival yeah exactly yeah. And funny berlin was the last festival really that was the last true festival that happened right on and then actually in the fall after the fall season which ends basically with the the new york uh, presentation film festival, the Film Society yep. Lincoln Center. Uh, uh, then in Los Angeles in November, you have American Film Market, uh, uh, which is certainly a hotbed for screen. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, so um, actually at the moment, the AFM are staying as is. They, they, they are, but you know, they're hoping that, that things will be back to normal. So, uh, okay, so they're, they're imagining a public event by then because they're imagining the a reopening by then. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense to me, I mean. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, and we're, we're finding now that we're losing, you know, we're losing on, uh, obviously, the revenues derived from advertising and events that we would be hosting and obviously going to Cannes and producing our dailies and about four or five events and round tables and dinners and all that stuff that we would be doing. Um, but we are finding that we're getting more readers. And each week... Why? Because people are stuck at home. People yeah. are stuck at home and, and they're accessible. You know, we're able to pull in some great talkers each week. So we're doing these uh, sessions, um, webinars, every week on ScreenDaily.com where people can click in and, you know, we've got stakeholders and, uh, and um, you know, some senior players talking about the state, state of the industry right now. So you can check in on, on Screen Daily each week and there'll be a webinar. But one of the things that happened um, at the beginning of this year, I became chairman of Brit Week. And Brit Week is this organization that celebrates the unique relationship between the UK and the US. And every year in April, it's a wonderful week in Los Angeles of food, film, innovation, talk, fashion, um, music, all over LA. There's stuff going on. And um, when I got given the uh, well, Nigel Lithgow is my, it's the founder of uh, uh, um, of this, and um, he stepped down because he's about to do a, a dance festival. So I took over in January, but I decided to give it a year off to kind of rebrand, maybe look at raising some more sponsorship and develop the idea for 2021. And then this thing happened. And as a result of that, I thought, well, everyone's stuck at home. Let's do Brit Week at home. And we named it Brit Week in-house. And I picked up the phone and I started calling people. And it's been remarkable the positive feedback that I've got, you know, things like uh, we're, we're doing a tie-in with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, which is a um, one of London's oldest academies. And Neville Mariner. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the Joshua, Joshua Bell is this extraordinary violin virtuoso. 
who's the director of it. And I said, you know, if you're at home, would you like to play for Brit Week? Anyway, they went back and they huddled and they came back and they said, we're going to give you something even better. We're going to give you the Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 that was recorded back in 2019, never been seen. So we're going to be showing that to the Brit Week crowd. We've got a music festival that was at the Ford that I was part of last year called Hassan Hassaj's Rockstars. We've got ballet. Uh, we've got... Um, Mick Jagger's daughter, Karis, and her business partner, Fabian, doing food, food during the crisis. So they're cooking a scotch egg and telling you how to make scotch eggs. That's uh, and you're doing some theatre as well, eh? Yeah, we've got the National Theatre in London. Uh, and Hugh Bonneville is going to introduce that. He's the Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. He's a friend of mine. And Hugh's going to introduce that. And it's Twelfth uh, Night. Uh, then you can go to the Royal Court Theatre in Sloan Square and watch a play called Cypress Avenue with Stephen Ray. Uh, we've got all manner of stuff. It's a wonderful week. And um, the laboratory, just to give you the full circle, uh, which um, every week sends out a newsletter to its members. And in that newsletter, we'll have a guest curate their favourite book, their favourite film their favorite piece of music uh, an object they love a place they've been to a current exhibition they recommend and this is called the cabinet of curiosities and it goes out every week and the laboratory also now publishes as a biannual magazine that is themed so we've got all this content that we sit on and all these fantastic people we've interviewed over the years and all of the stuff that is the laboratory which is quite frankly my life so i said to louise Let's plug the laboratory into Brit Week and make that a perfect union. So we have three in conversations that the laboratory's produced. One is with uh, Sir Michael Lindsay Hogg, who was one of the foremost directors on Ready, Steady, Go. And he filmed Let It Be with the Beatles. And, you know, he's filmed everyone from the Rolling Stones to the Beatles to the Who. He's a legend. Um, and a great raconteur. So I've got an interview with him. I've just got off the phone with Dame Zandra Rhodes, who was London's foremost and most colourful fashion designer. And she's been honoured. She's a dame. Uh, and boy, is she a dame. She's fantastic. I love it. I was just talking to her in her flat in London. In fact, her flat, her apartment above her own museum, dedicated to her life in fashion. Uh, and then we have another conversation um, with Molly Parkin, full circle. She used to sit in the colony rooms in the 50s next to Francis Bacon and Lucien Freud and all the cats that used to hang out there. She's now 88. And her daughter, Sophie, interviewed her for Brit Week. And it's all coming out through the lab mag. And, um, and that's, you know, that's where everything kind of works in my life. When... When everything connects in that way, it's a perfect marriage. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So uh, uh, we we we're we're on to to launching uh, Brit Week coming up, and uh, 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 what an incredible career you've had, uh, uh, Mr. Daly. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, 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 no no stone unturned is the way I'd like to put it. Yeah, yeah, you did all the things that you wanted to do on your own terms, which is such a 
a beautiful life story to have uh, have lived. And uh, and I and I, I I think you had mentioned to me that your your haunts in Hollywood are very similar to my own at Musso and Frank's the Sunset Tower. So I do look forward, even though I have uh, stopped drinking alcoholic beverages, I believe I would make an exception to have a martini with you at the Sunset Tower. <laughs> I would love that. That is a date. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Nigel, and best of luck with Brit Week coming up. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, get involved and log in and see what's going on. And, oh, uh, and uh, 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 thank you so much for spending time uh, uh, here. Uh, uh, what a pleasure and what, a, what an honor. Thank you. Uh, lovely to talk to you, Charlie, really. And I look forward to either seeing you at the bar at Sunset Towers or yes. over your neck of the woods, if I make yes. those. I love it. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you. Ciao. God bless. Bye.